Welcome to Texas Rising, a show that explores the driving forces behind the financial phenomenon that is the Texas miracle. Join your hosts, business leaders and dads, Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman, as they bring you luminaries from across the great state of Texas to talk business, culture, public policy, and much more. And now, coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, this is Texas Rising. Well, Jeff, great to be back with you for episode two of Texas Rising. I know we've got a great episode ahead of us talking real estate, both commercial and residential with your friend, Justin Short, and my lovely bride, Jamie Story Coleman. But how was your weekend and how did you celebrate Memorial Day? Yeah, obviously, you know, first and foremost, happy Memorial Day, Ben, to, to you. And certainly it's been a great weekend to get together with family and, and be remindful of, of all the folks who've served and, and have given their lives for the nation. I thought just real quickly, I thought it might be a great opportunity for the listeners who may not know for you just to give a little bit of your background and your military experience, which, you know, I, I was waiting for this episode to, you know, we do it all the time, but formally thank you for your service. Well, I appreciate that, Jeff. Yeah, just for those who are unfamiliar, I spent the first 11 years of my real career flying F-18s for the Navy, did an Afghanistan tour, and then came back as an instructor pilot at Miramar, followed that up with a couple of years of work in defense innovation, building a number of organizations, and ultimately working for a four-star admiral as his aide and speechwriter. And to think about Memorial Day in particular, there are at least five or six aviators that I knew that died in the line of service. None of them in combat, thankfully, but as you can imagine, aviation is a pretty tough job to have, and there are some perils to the career. So thanks for bringing that up. Actually, my wife and I did something really great this morning. There's a wall of heroes that Carrying the Load does every year across the Katy Trail, which is a five-mile-ish route in the heart of Dallas. And every you know 50 or 100 feet, they post an image of someone who's fallen and took the kids out there. We we're just able to take our time walking down the trail, hearing the stories of those who had passed before us. So great to see the community rally around our military community and uh, just hear about some heroes who had given their lives for our nation's freedom. That's wonderful. I'm really glad that you got your kids involved. I've been really interested to get your thoughts on today in particular, because I think it's it's obviously has to be for, for especially for a, a veteran like you, who, who has known people who have given their lives uh, in service to the country. It's got to be a weird day in that it's it's one of those days around the nation where, you know, everybody gets the, you know, most people get the day off work. And, you know, we, we kind of get together and barbecue or go to the beach, like my family and I are at the beach right now here in Port Aransas. But at the same time, it, it also has a, an incredibly somber purpose to, you know, we celebrate these freedoms that we exercise on a daily basis. But, you know, those freedoms had to be paid for with the lives of, of men and women. And uh, again, in, in service, whether in combat or in some other form of service to the nation. So I, I don't know how your, your thoughts on that and just kind of, it, it's always kind of struck me as a, as a weird kind of dichotomy of a, of a holiday in terms of how we treat it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely two minds to it. I think I'm of the mind that those who did go before us would want us to celebrate the freedoms we have on the beaches, at the barbecues, with family and friends, enjoying this time while also reflecting on the sacrifice they made. Uh, I think this week it's particularly poignant because, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later, but you know, as news kind of emerges of what happens in Uvalde, we see 
folks who were tasked with giving their lives for others, choosing to do otherwise. And as I reflect upon some folks that I know, one guy in particular, a guy named Lieutenant Callsign Abrek, he was an E2 pilot. He died in 2010, but you know he had a choice to make when his plane was going down. They hit a hydraulic issue with one of their engines. The engine broke and they were about to go in the sea and he could have bailed out and saved his own life, but chose to allow uh, his crewmates to, to bail out before him while he used a very difficult aerial maneuver to keep the plane airborne. And ultimately, no one knows what happened to him, presume he was lost at sea. But that self-sacrificial attitude is something I always reflect upon. You know, there's the scripture verse that talks about no greater love hath a man than he who gives his life for his friends. And that to me, what Abrick did in that moment is a perfect distillation of why we honor and even celebrate those who have gone before us uh, and made our country what it is. Yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. So certainly, you know, again, Ben, thank you for your service and, and for all those uh, listening who are veterans or, or veterans of our intelligence services. Thank you for your service as well. To your point, Ben, in terms of some of the somber news that has been with us here uh, since our last episode, we, we kicked off our first episode with, you know, the inaugural Hear Ye, Hear Ye, which was kind of a, a lighthearted opportunity to discuss some of the topical news stories around the state. But I will tell you, you and I have been talking about offline, it's, we'd be a little remiss if, if we didn't cover one of the primary topics everyone's talking about right now. And this happened on May 24th here, just a, a few short days ago. 18-year-old Salvador Rolando Ramos fatally shot 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, just outside of San Antonio. Ben, I, I, I don't know what your thoughts were, but I will tell you just initially when I saw the kind of the news Chiron come across uh, there, the TV that, that talked about an active shooter at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, I think as a parent, you just, you, it may not be your child, but you kind of understand emotionally what those, what those parents are going through, just kind of your, your body locks up. And just to think about the sheer, the sheer panic and terror that would go through a parent's mind, just hearing that there was a, an incident, let alone an active shooter at their, their child's school. And now we know that, that many of these, these parents raced to the scene as, as it was unfolding. And I can only imagine just the, the agony that, that many of those and that entire community are going through right now. Yeah, I think having children now in the elementary ages brings a whole new reality to to these to these mass shootings you know it's one thing to kind of be on one side or the other without kids kind of seeing this in the news and you can have your debates it's another to hear about it and know that your first grader is in school uh, where this could easily happen and fortunately i think you know a lot of schools have protective measures in place but even those you know as was evidenced in this last situation uh, can be overcome. It's a lot to think about. And there are so many different ways to, to approach it and, and engage on it. I think the one thing that's come to mind for me is each generation for school children seems to have that thing that's outside the educational curriculum that they have to do to prepare their students for the real world. I think of my parents' generation in the 1960s and 70s, where they were taught to dive under their desks if they heard the air raid siren, if a uh, Soviet nuclear attack were to happen. And 
You know, if you think about it uh, from a macro scale, if a nuclear bomb is going to go off, you know, how much protection is that under the uh, the dust thing going to do for you? But similarly, I think, you know, our, you know, our kids' generation, one of the things they practice now is what happens in an active shooter situation. Climb under your desk, you know, barricade the door, escape if you can, you know, a, a unfortunately best practice learned response in the midst of a horrific situation that is truly a situation where, you know, a slaughter of innocence is occurring, which I think for me is, as I've reflected on this, why so much attention is paid to school shootings in particular when there is so much other gun violence happening across the country. Uh, and it truly is, there's something special about children. And when they are subjected to an assault on their innocence and their lives are taken, we as a human species have to respond in, in, a, in an outrage, compassionate way, uh, because this is our future. Uh, this is, they, are, they are truly in a place where they should be safe and whatever reason the system has broken down in a way that allows someone to uh to take those innocent lives yeah i'm i'm hoping and, and uh you know certainly if for listeners that might be interested here in uh we've been talking to ben and i think we may have a, a potential special episode where we may try and bring on on some folks who are obviously uh smarter than us that may be able to help inform this discussion you know i i will tell you as as a father like you ben it's you have to be very mindful not to, especially, and I think from a from a decision making public policy response. While while outrage helps inform a passionate discourse, I think it's really important to have a, a measured conversation when you're talking about you know outcomes. One of the challenges I will tell you that that I have struggled with here over the past five or six days since the incident is it just seems that for me two kind of overwhelming feelings that I've, I've been dealing with. The first one is it just, it's almost like we have become inoculated to, to school shootings in America that we've become desensitized to it. Um, and I think that's, that's unfortunately a terrible place as a nation to find ourselves. That that's, that's one. I think the second overwhelming feeling that, that I've had is a, a sense of despair almost and that knowing that nothing is, is likely to change. You know, I would tell you that I am a gun owner myself, ardently in, in favor and supportive of the Second Amendment. At the same time, I think there are some very fundamental questions we as, as a society should ask ourselves not only in terms of the accessibility of some of the weapons like the AR-15 that was used in, in the Uvalde shooting, but ask ourselves, you know, is, is, it, is it appropriate for as many people to have access to those firearms as, as they should? I think the fundamental question that we need to ask ourselves is, is it fundamentally appropriate as a society that freely supports a citizen's right to exercise their constitutional rights under the Second Amendment do we also need to be a society that you know just needs to be okay with with school shootings moving forward? And I don't think that's the equation that most people would would agree with. Yeah, I, th I agree. I think that the trade-off there is incredibly stark. And then as soon as you engage in that line of reasoning, you have to get down to the specifics of what's going to happen. So as we think about what to do about this, you know, I've heard a number of of potential actions, one of which is, you know, introduce or 
augment red flag laws, which Texas actually passed one in 2013 in the aftermath of another school shooting here. Another is limit the sale of either handguns or what's called assault rifles. So that's a very ambiguous term. AR-15s come to mind, but they are the most popular weapons sold in America. As soon as you get to the specifics of any top of any policy position, it gets very thorny and very messy. And you know, other trade-offs start coming to the fore. I don't know what the right answer is. I think this is something that, especially in Texas, we have to grapple with because we are known as a state where folks love to have their weapons and their guns. Um, And at the same time, you're seeing increased pushback against what is transpiring, especially on campuses. So it's it's incredibly challenging to come up with the right answer here. And, and I think you, you bring up a really good point. One of the challenges that I would say is, again, this is why I think it's so important to have a measured conversation when you talk about public policy outcomes. But to your point specifically, you know, if, if, if we're going to broaden the conversation to handguns and some other forms of, you know, rifle, shotguns, et cetera, that's not what we're, we're talking about, right? When you look at these incidents of, of school shootings, by and large, you know, you're talking about an AR-15. And I just have a, a fundamental question, again, as a gun owner and, and somebody that's fully supportive of the Second Amendment, is it appropriate as a society, as a community here in Texas, that an 18-year-old should be able to walk in and purchase two AR-15s and walk out with those with those weapons. Now, we'll have to see what the investigation shows, and it'll have to run its course. But I, I do think, again, another item is, is it, should we raise the, the legal limit uh, that's required when, when purchasing an AR-15? There, there's a lot of things on the table, and I think it, all of them, in my opinion, especially after Uvalde, should be on the table. I think it's worth it's worth engaging in that discussion. And just a, a quick counter is, if the U.S. government can conscript a young male, which they can at 18, to go fight our nation's wars with even more powerful weapons and a right enshrined in the Constitution to be able to pursue and purchase weapons, it seems that might be a hard thing to to push through within our society. I saw a really interesting analogy, and you can disagree with it or agree with it based on your perception, but the question was raised, you know, there's a lot of conversation. Did the founders intend for, you know, folks to be able to access high-powered weapons? And the question was raised, what is more alike? Uh, A musket in 1790 and an AR-15 semi-automatic with one round? or news meter, no, newspapers in 1790 in the New York Times. And the analogy being the First Amendment still applies to vast changes in society 250 or 275 years later compared to what it was previously. And I think this is where the, the challenge comes into play is as you start to implement a lot of these specific solutions, you run up headlong into fundamental rights that have been sacrosanct in our society for for a long time that is going to create and have to be subject to a strong national debate. And again, which is why I think dedicating a a future episode to to more of this conversation is is critical, certainly as hopefully the state of Texas, we we deal with either in a special session of, of the legislature or in the upcoming legislative session. 
it feels like Uvalde changed the game a little bit, just in terms of some of the discourse that I've been seeing online and, and in the media here in the, the five or six days since, since the shooting. But, you know, we as a nation have collectively said that after a lot of these school shootings and, and nothing seems to change. Well, Jeff, thanks for introducing that, that robust conversation. I'm sure we'll, we'll follow up with some, some experts down the line. But something we did want to engage with our audience on, which has been a lot of, on a lot of folks' minds, aside from recent events, is the real estate market. And today, we're honored to have two guests, one to talk about the commercial side and one to talk about the residential side. Uh, so Jeff, do you want to introduce uh, your guest, Justin, and I can introduce my wife, Jamie? Yeah, you bet. Justin Sheward is a really good friend of mine. Really excited for him to to join us uh, as an expert here uh, on the commercial real estate market in, in, in the DFW Metroplex, as well as markets around the state of Texas. He is a senior director with Marcus and Milchap, and he has uh, arranged debt and equity financing for a variety of commercial real estate owners and developers through banks, life insurance companies, pension funds, and a number another of, of, of lenders uh, around the state. He also has extensive experience financing all property types, including multifamily, uh, student housing, senior housing, hotels, office, retail, and industrial space. So really glad and excited for uh, Justin to join us this evening. And on the Thanks. flip side, I'm happy to host my wife, Jamie Story <laughs> Coleman, who is part of the residential real estate practice at Dave Perry Miller. She's been doing it for almost the past five years since we got here in Dallas and has uh, seen a lot in the past five years, especially the past couple of years, uh, interest rates going all over the place, uh, incredibly challenging bidding wars, both on the buyer and seller side. And as we hit this new inflationary environment, has some really interesting insights into, into what's happening on the scene. Uh, so Jeff, maybe I'll hand it to you. You can start on the commercial space, and then we can just dive into some questions on what's happening elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. You, you bet. Uh, so Justin, let me, let me just say this. I feel like I, I meet somebody each and every day in the DFW area and I ask them what they do and they say they're in commercial real estate. And I feel like when I, when I run into to different folks, they're in commercial real estate, yet they have a completely different job than I may not be familiar with. Can you just walk us through, you know, a lot of the different types of roles in the commercial real estate space? What, you know, what do people do? What are the types of roles that, that people would run into? Sure. I'm happy to. And that's a good question because when I first graduated from Texas from undergrad, uh, I was a banker. I worked at Citibank for six or seven years before I decided to go back and get my MBA at SMU and move from the residential side of real estate to the commercial side. And it's interesting because as you point out, you run into you know everybody on the street corner in their commercial real estate, but there are so many different job roles and lines of industry and it's not something that's very well taught in schools. Even going to SMU to get my MBA and focus on real estate finance, it was not very clear to me graduating what all the different career paths were. So I work on the debt and equity side. I raise, it's essentially investment banking for real estate. I go out and you know my clients are developers, owners of real estate. I go out, I find the best lender or equity partner for them on uh, a building that they're going to own or build. You've got guys that are in the leasing space. So they either represent the tenant or the landlord. So you have landlord reps, you have tenant reps. It could be office, it could be industrial, it could be retail. You've got the, the 
valuation advisor side of the business, which is the appraisers who go out and appraise the buildings. You've got property management. So you might be, I mean, somebody in commercial real estate could be a janitor in an office building, or they could be like the senior director of one of the big four companies that oversee two million square feet of office in DFW. There's a lot of different job paths and career paths that one can take. But kind of figuring that out is hard to do, at least at the academic level. It's not really until you start meeting with people, sitting down, having conversations, understanding what they do, until you really kind of understand all of the different avenues of commercial real estate. So it's kind of funny because it's a very relationship-driven business. It's very localized, but at the same time, until you kind of break into it, you don't really understand what it is. Instead, it's very easy to break into it at an entry level, at least. So you'll see a lot of young people getting in, into the business and you know maybe they're on the appraisal side or, or the tenant rep side, but it's a fun business. And, and like I said, it's very relationship driven, so. I think that's, I think that's, that's a really good overview. You know, I think there's, there's also a big, big debate. Uh, and I think some of this, you know, this question may, may, uh, you know, boil over into, into what Jamie does every day as well. But, you know, there's, there's a big debate about the future of office, right? And, you know, some people say, hey, the office is never coming back. Some people say, you know, we're all going to be back in the office here in the next few months. You know, my, I guess my fundamental question to, to you would be, you know, twofold. One, you know, where do you come down on that? And, you know, how has capital or, or capital flows reacted to office projects, both in the DFW metroplexes as well as uh, in markets around the state? Because I think that'll be indicative of, of where things are headed in the future. Yeah, and um, that's a good question. And certainly as we move on to multifamily, uh, I, I'd say that's where more of my expertise lies, but I've done my fair share of office. And obviously as a company, we, we do a lot of office. So it's been interesting because going into COVID, we saw this move from huge floor plates, lots of office space to shrinking down the footprint of companies. And even this hoteling concept where employees don't have their own cubicle or their own office, but they're sharing space and there's lockers and you go in and you just kind of find a place to work. And it seemed like, uh, you know, towards the end of 2019, that was the way that the office industry was moving. But then you have COVID hit and work from home. And I was in Wakefield before joining Marcus and Millichap, you know, a little less than a year ago, about 10 months ago. And we had a floor and a half at McKinney and Olive. And for the better part of, geez, all the way up until I left. So probably a little over a year and a half, I was like one of six people on a floor and a half. And, and then you look at where things are moving today, and it's still not clear as to whether this whole temporary office place to work for employees is going to go. But what is clear is that everybody's mindful of, let's have six feet of space between us, let's socially distance. So I think in terms of the overall need for office, in terms of square feet for a company, I'm of the belief, at least, that we're going to see that unchanged, because even if you have less people in the office than everyone being there full time or where everybody has their own designated desk, uh, you're still spreading people out. So I still think there's plenty of need and demand for you know the 30,000 square foot floor plates. And I, I don't know that that really changes. I also think that you know, we're still pretty fresh into this whole COVID thing. 
in terms of being able to analyze the data and the impact from it. And I know, you know, personally, I have three small children. So working from home is terribly inefficient. I'm much better at the office. You know, I know that not every employee in the state of Texas or, or in the country is in the same situation I am, where you've got three kids under seven at home. But I think a, a vast majority of them are, and whether or not it's children or other distractions, I'm willing to bet that when the numbers come out, productivity has gone way down once we move to this work from home model. So whether it be you know personal circumstances uh, that require you to be in you know a real office environment, or whether it just be employers looking at the bottom line and wanting to drive productivity and profitability, you know, I, I think there's going to be some relaxed version of the nine to five job, but I don't think it's viable that we as a society or economy just work from home in shorts all day. And then to the second point of your question about capital, it's become very hard to finance office deals. I would say there, there's two sides of the business, you know, when it comes to whether you're buying an office building or you're building one as a developer. If it's a stabilized office where you've got a credit tenant and they're on a 10-year lease, no sweat. But if you're talking about going out and building spec office or buying a building downtown that's 70% occupied and you know, you're going to attract tenants to it, that market has still been very slow to come back. I think the debt markets are, are receptive to it. They've cut back leverage. So where you used to be able to get 65% you know, loan to value or loan to cost on whatever your business plan was. Um, we've seen that pull back quite a bit, anywhere from you know, kind of the 50 to 60% range. But the, the real cog in the machine is the equity. I mean, equity is still speculative. So if you need to bring in an LP equity partner, spec office deal where you don't have any leases signed and you've got some business plan, no matter how good the business plan is, the question still emerges like, What's the future of office? If you're one of the top three, five developers in the state or the country trying to build spec office, you're probably not looking for an equity partner. You're probably going to your banking relationships to get the debt. So the capital is not really the concern or the constraint. So that's why we still see projects going up today. But I think there is still a, a bit of an unknown when it comes to what's going to be the future of office. Like I said, I, th I think there's a lot of people that subscribe to my theory about productivity and just needing a place to work. But at the same time, we may not be out of it, out of the whole COVID and work from thing home uh, or, or work from home thing, but you know, at a minimum, we're maybe a year. So I, th I think the money follows the data and the data is just not fresh. Thanks, Justin. I want to switch us a little bit to the, the residential side, which I know you've had uh, a part in in your past. But one of the things that I thought about five years ago before my wife got into real estate was it was inevitable that real estate was going to be disrupted. You know, I did not understand why agents were needed. I was a capable individual of doing this on my own. I saw things like Redfin and Zillow pop up. Uh, and in the past couple of years, I've come to realize how very wrong I was. So Jamie, I'd love to get your thought on why is an agent necessary in 2022? I think that depends on, on the, the, the year. I mean, you said 2022. So let's take that, for example, 
right now we're still seeing multiple offers on a lot of, of listings, not everyone, not like we were seeing two months ago, but certainly on, I would say the majority of the well-priced and, and nice listings that don't have a big obvious black eye on them, we're still seeing multiple offers. And so having someone who can really advocate for you, help you with those relationships and with some tricks maybe that might help you stand above the crowd is really helpful. And then of course, once you're under contract, and this is true in any kind of market, but knowing who the different inspectors are to call and who the different vendors who could maybe get you a quote on a new roof or how do you test for the plumbing? Is it a 1960s slab with cast iron plumbing? And what should we do about that? There's just a lot of things that an agent can expertise that an agent can give you. But beyond that, I think right now there, there's such a dearth of inventory. And if you have an agent who has good relationships and who can really hustle and find you some off-market opportunities as a buyer, that's, that's invaluable. Uh, I had a, a client who really called by accident this past week and thought, thought that this house he wanted to see was, was our listing. And it turns out it wasn't, but he said, well, I'm just going to work on my own. I used to do commercial real estate. I had my license. I'll just represent myself. But then when he realized there were so many off-market opportunities that he didn't know about, I ended up showing him seven homes in the two days he was here. Five of those were not even on the MLS. And I think our team last year, about 25% of the transaction was off market this year. So far to year to date, it's 36%. So there's already a limited amount of inventory on the MLS. If you have an agent who's well-connected, who will send letters out on your behalf, who will help uncover off market opportunities that can really help you avoid a bidding war and also get, give you some property tax arbitrage. If, if you can avoid putting something on the MLS, then the city and county is less likely to know what you paid for it, which can save you property tax money in the, in the long run too. You know, Jamie, I think we might have, you know, so you proving to Ben why a realtor, why an agent is needed. I think we may have an entirely different episode of just you proving Ben wrong. I think there's probably a multitude of reasons uh, and, and things we can talk about, but uh, kind of similar question that, that I, I had to Justin in terms of kind of the future of, of work and, and return to workplace. I guess my question, you know, similarly for you would be, are you seeing that impact residential uh, home purchases at all in terms of art? Do you have clients now that say, hey, listen, I need an office where I didn't need one before, or I need uh, you know, more square foot than, you know, square feet than, than, than I did previously in case we go back uh, into some kind of lockdown or I have to, uh, you know, deal with my kids, you know, learning from home for a prolonged period of time. Does that come into the conversation at all? It definitely does. Uh, the, the learning from home thing, I don't think impacted us as much here in Dallas and probably Texas just statewide, because thank goodness most kids were not at home too terribly long, um, like they have been in other states. But the two, we've gone from, and certain price points and size of homes kind of come with an office, but it may be a small one. And so we've gone from either needing an extra bedroom to serve as the office, maybe needing two offices, uh, which very few homes would have two offices sort of intended for that purpose. But certainly if you really only need three bedrooms, but maybe you look for a four bedroom plus an office because you need two offices, uh, that that's that's become something. And, and actually recently, somebody who works from home all the time now, the standard size office is kind of not really what they need. They, they wanted something bigger, like the playroom was now going to be their office. So lots of changes on the office front. And then I think probably more requests for an extra bedroom to be a home gym than we used to see. 
Um, also media rooms had sort of gone um, out of style for the last 15 years or so. And those have now made a comeback as movie theaters have gone down downhill. So uh, lots of different changes. And then of course the outdoor space, that was the big, big change from, from COVID is everybody, including our family, wanting more of a yard. Um, if you're going to spend all that time at home, you want to be able to enjoy the outdoors as well. So can you just walk us through the past year in Dallas? And I think it's actually a good microcosm of the rest of Texas. You know, I think May 2021, we started to see the beginnings of a super hot market and then it got bonkers then at 21 early 22 was crazy and then the fed comes in and, and hikes up interest rates you know how should people think about this market right now what are you seeing in terms of the the changes that have happened the past couple months like what's the outlook so i would say that the the peak of the fervor was probably two months ago february march i would say certainly things have softened a bit since then we're in late may now as we're recording this today and there are still multiple offer situations, but there are not as many, or maybe a house that I think would have had 15 offers three months ago may just have three or four today. You're seeing a fewer, um, you're seeing more price reductions than we were seeing. We weren't seeing any price reductions. I mean, you could sell anything a few months ago. And, and I think also because I think sellers are starting to recognize that, that maybe that this frenzy is disappearing. And so you're starting to see more inventory, which is great because some sellers who maybe were thinking, oh, we'll, we're gonna be empty nesters in the next year and maybe we'll sell in a year or two. Some of them are now realizing, mm, this might be the best it's gonna get. Let's go ahead and sell now. And I don't, I don't personally believe that prices will go down. I think there's too many people moving here. I think our economy is so diversified in Dallas in particular, but I do think that if you wanna be able to have a six month free lease back and not make any repairs and just sort of have a convenience. You know, so that's, that's, that's really interesting. You know, on the commercial side, Justin, I would ask the same or similar question to you in terms of as, as the fed continues to raise interest rates and we potentially head into, to an economic slowdown or potential recession, you know, how, how do you think that will impact multifamily projects? I feel like you can't drive anywhere in the Metroplex or, you know, anywhere along I-35 in particular without seeing uh, new apartment complexes that are, that are springing up everywhere. And you talked about your experience in multifamily. How do you think a rising rate environment and economic slowdown, how is that going to impact multifamily projects? And, you know, what are some of the best multifamily markets around the state? Well, the second part of the question is easier to answer. Alice, Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio, maybe to some extent Houston, depending on where you're located. But Houston has always had that stigma about it being a very oil-driven economy. And so capital tends to be less aggressive there. But you have an apartment building and it could be an urban, in the suburbs, in the path to growth. And there's so much capital in the market right now chasing those deals. I don't think we see any slowdown. I mean, Jeff, you, you can't drive around the city of Dallas and find me an apartment building that's not 95% occupied or, or higher. I mean, it's just, we have a shortage of housing, both on, you know, I'm sure it's, as Jamie could speak to on, on the buy side, but also on the rental side, there's 500 people a day moving to DFW. So if 30% of those people are looking to rent an apartment, or single family home, then we need to build another apartment every other day. 
I mean, that's just that, that's just the math. So I, I think until we see a slowdown in job growth, job migration to the state of Texas, until we see a slowdown in population growth, you know, I, it's not going to stop. I mean, we're we're severely underserved in rental housing. I mean. It doesn't matter how many cranes there are in the sky. There's just too many people coming here, which is a good thing. Um, that being said, you balance that with rising interest rates. I run our multifamily finance practice team for the company. And my guys, all they do is multifamily. We underwrite probably 50 deals a week. And Fannie and Freddie, who have always been the bread and butter, you're going to buy an apartment building, you're going to put permanent 10-year debt on it. They just aren't competitive in this environment. Um, they underwrite to the actual in-place cash flows, and you can't get anything more than 50% leverage out of them today. Those that are out there buying apartments are opportunistic funds or backed by opportunities. I mean, everybody's getting in the multifamily game at this point, and they're all looking for 70 to 80% leverage. So the entire market has shifted towards debt funds. Debt funds give you floating rate money on a three-year business plan. And with the increase in interest rates, it's putting more strain on those deals. And they're starting to require that you buy interest rate caps, which have inflated by like 400%. So an interest rate cap on a $50 million loan in January was, I don't know, a couple hundred grand. Now it's 1.5 million, right? But on the flip side of that, you have all these buyers or all these sellers that finance their deal with Fannie and Freddie and have prepayment penalties and yield maintenance and defeasance. And because rates have gone up, their prepayment penalty has dropped drastically. So there's still a very easy middle ground for the buyer and the seller to meet, right? If it's a $50 million transaction back in January, they're walking away with $48 million and they're paying fees to everybody else. Today, the same is true. So I don't think that there's a disconnect between seller and buyer expectations. There has been an increase in the cost of borrowing, but let's be honest, our rent growth last year was 17%. It's projected to be the same or higher this year. The market bails out everybody when you have 17% rental growth. So if your interest rates go from 3% to 5% in a given year, but you're raising rents by 17%, everybody's still you know, happy at the end of the day. And it's not that different from 2016, 17. I mean, all the floating rate debt, whether it was construction debt and it was a construction loan or it was an acquisition loan and it was a, a bridge play, it was pegged to LIBOR. The only thing that changed was now we're off SOFR. And LIBOR was like 1.8 back in 16 and 17, and deals were still getting done. So for today, it's at 80 basis points. So there's still plenty of spread between where interest rates are and where cap rates are, historically speaking. I think the biggest struggle is with the rise in the interest rates and the compression in the cap rates, getting the leverage that buyers need to actually acquire a deal. So the days of 80% debt are gone for the time being, but all the institutional money, everybody that's buying all the brand new shiny class A apartment buildings around town, they're borrowing 60, 65% debt anyway. And it's not, it's not slowing them down. I mean, I guess this to me begs the question of, is this sustainable? I think 
Dallas and Texas in particular is in a unique position where we talked about the diversity of industries we have here. The slowdown really has hit the NASDAQ the hardest, the tech stocks, obviously energy stocks are up in this inflationary environment. And because Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio are so diversified, you know, is the recession, if it does hit, going to be muted here uh, compared to the rest of the country as it was in 2008? We're still having net migration from other states coming in, which should you know, drive prices higher, especially given supply constraints. And no one has a crystal ball, but I guess I'd be curious you know, from both the residential and commercial side, how resilient is Texas, is Dallas in particular, to economic shocks? What have we seen in the past? What can we expect to see in the next year or two? I think that's the big unknown to me today here is and back in 2008, Texas statewide, I think only you only saw housing prices drop about 3% on average, which was far less than the national average. And a lot of that was due to more conservative lending practices. Uh, we were not seen as being overvalued uh, as much as other markets throughout the country. Today, that's not really the case. Now, I'm sure these indices of being overvalued, I'm sure there's all sorts of variables that we might disagree with. And, and maybe we're not really overvalued by 30% or something like, like some publications say we are. But that that really to me is the biggest question. Because if in fact we are, that just opens us up to, to more potential downside than we had in 2008. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it's a data statistic. And I haven't, I should look it up because I like to quote this a lot. But I think it was in 2018, Texas was 2% of the economy's 2.8% in GDP. I mean, it's a very resilient economy. And if you look back at 2008, Texas, Phoenix, some of the other Sunbelt states were hit last by the recession and really one of the best markets in the country from an economic standpoint. But as it relates to housing, whether it be, you know, for the job growth and the employment growth, I, I, I don't, I don't see any way that this market has an end of a runway. I mean, I, I, I think it keeps going, and you know, interest rates, the capital environment. I mean, yes, rates are going up, and we expect them to go up more. But if history has told us anything, they come down just as quickly. So unless there's some corporate tax change in the state of Texas or within the country, until you stop attracting employers and more jobs and more you know, household formation, it's, it's limitless, really. You know, I think one of, the, one of the questions that I would pose to you both is if it, historically, you know, it, it's been, uh, you know, from the outside looking in, historically, I've noticed that in, in Texas real estate, we tend uh, to overbuild uh, and then we tend to become overburdened with debt uh, in the long run. And I guess my question is, as we look for new opportunities, both on the commercial and residential side to meet the current demand, do you think there's uh, any risk of, of the history repeating itself? Do we think it's different this time? If so, how so? I think in the commercial space, and you're right, we have tended to overdevelop. That's <laughs> what we're known for. But I think the change that we've seen over at least the last cycle or two is that the end buyer, right? The, the, the 
buyer of this stabilized, fully leased asset that's throwing us off cash flow, we're talking about 50, $100 million assets at this point. It wasn't like it was in the 80s or before that, where you could club up some equity, you could have private owners. I mean, the, the true core assets are now owned by institutional owners, right? It's Goldman, it's Invesco, it's PPG, right? And they don't tend to put on as much leverage to begin with. And they have the balance sheet and the liquidity behind them to withstand any sort of temporary. So I think in the commercial space, we've finally, as a state, gotten to a point where asset value has gotten so high that the real owners of that real estate are well healed financially. Um, And it's not, you know, some apartment complex or some office building that's 15, $20 million and, you know, two family offices go and buy it, the market tanks and all of a sudden they're, you know, floating rate debt shoots way up. I, I think we've shifted to more of a, I wouldn't call it a gateway market, not in New York or in LA, but certainly, you know, it's, it's certainly the most, focused on market and at the top of any debt or equity funds list in terms of target markets and with uh, appreciation and value, uh, I think it's kind of outstepped the boundary to where we would see an overburdening of debt at this point, because I think most of the owners out there are, you know, well-heeled. I mean, as far as the residential side, I think, well, a couple of different things. One, I mean, we're... It's, it's hard to imagine us overbuilding at this point because we can't get the supplies that are needed to build in the first place. And I mean, lot prices are one thing that have not slowed down, by the way. The lots in the, in the city center of Dallas are, I mean, you can't imagine how expensive they are. It's, it's gotten wild. But more kind of cookie cutter kind of developments outside of the city, the, the urban sprawl sort of things. They are, um, which is kind of an, one answer to affordability, by the way, for a while there, they were not even offering any real estate commissions to buyer's agents because they didn't have to, because these people were just coming in. And I've noticed just the past few weeks that they've started to offer them again, but they're certainly not, you know, for a while they were, they were doubling, they were competing against each other for who could pay the biggest real estate commissions because they were needing to compete. This was two or three years ago. Now they don't need to, right? Like you're lucky if you get something at all as an agent taking someone to some of these new developments. So it's interesting to see how that shifted over time. But as far as building, I mean, if you're trying to custom build or even a spec builder, I mean, these guys are so behind. We have labor shortages, obviously. We have supply chain problems. And it's hard to imagine overbuilding on the residential side anytime soon. It seems to me that the supply may be even further constrained in the next couple of years because most folks have probably refinanced down to a two or two and a half percent interest rate. And with five or five and a half percent on the horizon, if not more, you're going to see folks hanging on to their properties longer than they would have otherwise. Um, And if they've bought their home or did that refi, they got their family or whatever, you're going to see less supply in the market. So I think in Texas in particular, I can see a world in which the market stays hot because supply stays low. Um, and on that note, maybe a quick lightning round between y'all. If you have a client 
on the commercial or residential side, maybe yes, no answer here would be best. And they ask, should I hold off and wait one year before buying? What's your answer to them? No. <laughs> no, especially if they're financing, no. Cash, I, I, I still wouldn't. I don't think things will get cheaper, but it's not going to hurt them as much if they wait. Awesome. Well, Justin and Jamie, thanks for giving us some insights into the real estate market. And Jeff, any parting comments as we wrap up this second edition of Texas Rising? No, I would just say it's always wonderful to hear from your better half. And uh, certainly if you are in the market now or interested in purchasing or listing a home, please give Jamie a call. And big thanks to, to Justin for, for joining us. I will tell you what Justin didn't tell you is that he and I are probably the most prolific first grade flag football coaches to ever step on the gridiron. So uh, it is a special talent that uh, he and I have that's certainly complimentary of his day job. So yeah, no, that's uh... your teams beat our, our team, right, Ben? I think it was a close game. I don't, I don't specifically remember the score, but uh, it was certainly a close game. <laughs> Wait till next. We've been practicing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but thank you both for joining us. It was awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of Texas Rising with Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that's it for us this week. And remember, folks, keep on the straight and narrow. Don't mess with Texas, and we'll see you next week on Texas Rising.